Here we go. Hi, this is Nicholas Lemon. Welcome to Underreported, a podcast from Columbia Global Reports. Thanks for tuning in. On the eve of the 2016 presidential election, Columbia Global Reports published John Judas's The Populist Explosion, which predicted a worldwide wave of populist sentiment on the left and the right in reaction to the disruptions caused by globalization. The Populist Explosion has been our best-selling book so far in our four years in business, one of the standard places people go to try to understand the phenomenon of Donald Trump. Now Judas has written a sequel, The Nationalist Revival, which takes his argument one step further, from politics into governance. He makes a powerful and provocative case for nationalism as an inescapable aspect of politics everywhere in the world. He regards the idea that nationalism is merely a long-running transitional phase between local and global governance as absurd. He also refutes the idea that nationalism is inevitably right-wing. In his view, the left has has ceded nationalism to the right by declining to address working people's concerns about immigration and trade. The rise of leaders like Donald Trump in the United States and Viktor Orban in Hungary is the result. Judas believes that nationalism should be recaptured, not wished away. This is a book meant to explain and also to foment a discussion that we are not having yet. It is indispensable reading for people who want to understand the current moment. And let me just add that we've just signed... John to a contract to write a third book on socialism, which we won't talk about today, and then we're going to call these the ISM trilogy or the IST trilogy or something like that. Um, hi, John. Welcome to the podcast. You, thank you for having so me. So let's start <laughs> uh, by just trying to define what is nationalism and how is it different from populism? Well, the, the the main thing is that uh, po populism is a kind of political uh, logic. It's a way of uh, of describing a politics that differentiates between the people and the elites. Nationalism is really uh, a sentiment, basically, uh, that can take political forms and different political forms. Um, it's something that uh, we get when we grow up. It's a sense of our identity of being of being a part of a nation that is greater than ourselves. And of being willing in uh, extremities to uh, to die for our nation, um, being happy when our nation does well, being embarrassed and mad when it doesn't do well. So it's it's in that sense, national identity uh, is uh, an intrinsic part of. Um, Americans, Hungarians, French, or whatever, um, and uh, it, it only become it takes different political forms. For instance, you can't really uh, have a, a a legislative proposal in Congress that somebody can say, "Well, that's against the national interest." That it's a test that everything has to pass being for the national interest. Um, we don't even sometimes make it explicit. But for instance, uh, Forbes magazine ran a feature uh, in in uh, uh, contesting Donald Trump, saying global 
legislation is in the national interest. So it's a again, it's something it's a point of reference. But sometimes in some periods, what you get is an explicitly nationalist politics that in which the central theme is that we have to defend our nation against an enemy. And sometimes uh, the enemy can be foreign. Sometimes it can be uh, within. And it doesn't necessarily have to be on the right or the left. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was a nationalist. Theodore Roosevelt was a nationalist. But so was uh, George Wallace and so was uh, Donald Trump. So it can take different – this kind of explicit nationalism could take different forms. And we're in a period in the United States and in uh, Western Europe and Central and Eastern Europe where we have an uh, a outburst of this kind of explicit nationalism. Let me go back and then ask you uh, why the outburst. So, um, you know, there's a famous book by Benedict Anderson called Imagined Communities that that's um, many of us read in our school days. And 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 you know, I'm oversimplifying, but it basically says that as we say in universities, nationalism is socially constructed. That 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 uh, nations aren't naturally occurring entities and nationalism as a sentiment is not a naturally occurring sentiment. And and a lot of people, especially on the left, take that to mean that it's just kind of a phase. It doesn't have to exist. It's not embedded in people's consciousness. It's just that they happen to have been, you know, imprinted with nationalism. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, what's your take on that. Yeah, I think I think that there's an interpretation of Benedict Anderson which says that it's not just imagined but imaginary. And uh, right, exactly. um, what I'd say is that, uh, I mean, all, all of our social institutions are in that sense ima- imagined uh, communities of some kind. Nations, we haven't always had nations. I mean, people were organized according to tribes and clans. Um, they didn't necessarily have something called a nation or or a state. But uh, beginning in the oh, late, late 18th century, uh, we we did begin to have uh, these kind of social communities that, that are national. And what it means is that uh, people identify themselves as having something in common with this greater group. You can't have, for instance, a democracy unless uh, somebody who votes thinks that it's okay for somebody else to have a vote and a control over your destiny, uh, whom you never are going to meet, you never know, who live 150 miles away, but what you have in common with them is that they're an American. So it's absolutely essential in that way. You can't have a welfare state uh, unless you have this common perception that it's okay for you to pay taxes to help somebody who's disabled in, uh, you know, Reno, Nevada or in Santa Fe, New Mexico, that you'll never meet in your life, but that that person is another, is also an American. And when that kind of perception breaks down, uh, then you get 
problems of governance, you get a governmental crisis. And we're, you know, you obviously see that in secession crises like they're having in Spain or, you know, to some extent, too, in uh, uh, the United Kingdom has had it with Scotland. Scotland. But you also see it with um, illegal immigration and issues like that where people say, well, my money's not going to really go to Americans. It's going to go to support the emergency room care for people who aren't Americans. So I don't want this program to be passed So let me ask you something at at the other end of the conceptual spectrum. So – you know, Steve Bannon's claim to fame or one of them is, is talking about globalists and, and using that as a sort of political device. It, are, are globalists a thing? Are there actually such people? Well, I think that there have been there, – there was in the 19 – particularly in the 1990s an argument that uh, if we uh, – uh, open our markets uh, internationally, if we allow corporations to move wherever they want, uh, if we have um, relatively uncontrolled immigration with family reunions and stuff, so we have like, you know, over a million people coming each year, that in the end, that's going to... uh, benefit nations. I don't think that I don't think that that there are globalists in the sense that I mean you find some people on the extreme left who say who really deny the that we should do anything national that we should even worry about the nation but I think for the great great majority of people uh, they do think of themselves as worried about the nation including the president of Exxon or whatever but I think that there was an argument in the night particularly in the 1990s to some extent today, that if we allow uh, capital and labor to move wherever they want, uh, it will in the end benefit the United States. And uh, that kind of argument is now contested. And that's part of what, again, uh, was the basis of a lot of Trump's popularity in places like the Midwest and the South that had lost a lot of jobs and who attributed that to um, this kind of globalist and, uh, economic um, perspective. And you also have Europe. So so let's talk in a, in, a, in a broader way about what is driving this, you know, surprising to the pundit class at least, nationalist revival of the last five years or so? Um, in, in Europe, it goes back to the, oh, the early uh, two, 2000s, if not to the, to, to the 1990s. And uh, a, a lot of it, what, what's driving it in the, uh, both the United States and Western and Eastern Central Europe is uh, a fusion of fears about um, uh, immigrants coming into the country and threatening the existing culture uh, with uh, the fear of terrorism. So, you know, in a country like Denmark that has r- relatively few uh, uh, immigrants, but since the 1880s has have had uh, people come into the country who are not Lutherans, uh, who are not, uh, you know, uh, whose lineage doesn't go back to the uh, 8th century um, and which has this in, an incredibly generous uh, welfare state, four years of unemployment insurance. Again, there's a kind of there, – there's a feeling that, that bolstered the uh, rise of – of a right-wing uh, 
right-wing party there that um, in order for their, these welfare benefits to work, people have to be like Danes. They have to be like us. They have to be completely committed to working, for instance. Uh, they can't come in and uh, try to live off our generous welfare system. So that kind of fears uh, uh, has, has fed uh, a lot of the nationalist uh, movements, uh, particularly uh, in, in Europe. I think there you don't have as much concern itself about trade. Uh, it's more about the uh, the reign of the euro. So you have that. You have immigration, terrorism, plus the the euro, and particularly in southern Europe, uh, the the idea that um, that the northern countries are making out like bandits under this system, but, but we're all getting screwed. Particularly Syrian driven part of the migration crisis in Europe were to moderate that would reduce nationalism in Europe? Um, well, if you add North Africa to that, that's a big deal. And that's not going to stop with the cessation of wars because yeah. a lot of it's based on famine yeah. and things like that. Um, I, I would expect that there will be some mitigation of the of those nationalist movements within the, the next five or ten years uh, if things settle down in the Middle East. I think that was – I mean the first wave was in the 90s in the Balkans uh, from Bosnia and Croatia and that's where – that's that started it off. Then you have this enormous wave from the Middle East and then North Africa. So uh, yeah, I, now, I, I, US, I, I would say so. And to some extent in Europe. Too. In, in conversation, nationalist and far right are used as kind of synonyms. Um, and, and so I want to explore that a little because your book pushes back against that. Um, so let's start with this. In, in the U.S. on, on immigration issues, um, Donald Trump being president and all the things he does around immigration, all of his rhetoric, essentially creates an atmosphere where Democrats don't have to have an immigration policy. Their immigration policy can be, uh, I am horrified justifiably by Donald Trump's immigration policy and I oppose it. Um, do you see... Where do you see this going as we head into the next election cycle? Do you see any of the Democratic candidates actually having an immigration policy? What is it? Is 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 a, you know abolish ICE and have relatively open borders out there as a serious policy among American liberals and Democrats? Talk about that a little, if you would. Well. I, I, you know, I have a few th thoughts about that. The, the first thought is that in a time of uh, prosperity like we're having with less than 4% unemployment, I'm not sure if uh, Trump's appeals uh, on immigration, and he's clearly gone uh, yeah, especially this over week immigration these days. Yeah, it's it, this week as we're yes, talking. right. It's, go, it's, gonna, it's going to resonate uh, the way it did in 2016, where you still where you had both immigration, you still had the left, you know, you still had the the uh, continuation to some extent of of the uh, uh, Great Recession, and you had these two two big terrorist incidents, San Bernardino and uh, Orlando. So I, I'm just not sure. 
sure whether it's going to be a big uh, selling point. And clearly, the closing the border thing didn't help him at all, and didn't help the uh, the Republicans. The, the 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 shutting down Congress over the over the border crisis. So that's one point. Uh, Democrats, though, um, I, I think if they go to the opposite extreme and have policies like uh, 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 abolish ICE, which means re- really uh, uh, affects again our ability to uh, combat terrorism in the United States, um, crime. Uh, it, I, I think again they'll they'll open the door to uh, Trump's kind of appeal, um, and, and I, the the comprehensive kind of reform that that uh, Democrats uh, were advocating in 2008 2013 I you know I think it still has a, still ha- has a lot of point to it uh, the problem in 2016 with Hillary Clinton was that all she did was um, was talk talk about um, uh, path to citizenship for illegal immigrants, but she didn't give any indication that she wanted to have a policy that would control immigration, legal and in, in, in illegal, into the country. And uh, I, I suspect that that's going to be again the, the case in twenty twenty. Well, you know, part of what's going on with the Democrats, and to some extent, the farther to the left parties in, in Europe is a political calculus, which is uh, that. You know, um, I should tell you know listeners who don't know this that John um, is the co-author of a book called The Emerging Democratic Majority, which he's semi-renounced <laughs> or something. But in that book, you argued that changing demographics, particularly in in southwestern states, would lead you know states who were part of the Reagan coalition to go blue. If I'm if I'm getting the argument right, um, so. So, you know, if you're a Democrat, why wouldn't you say, let's have a laxer immigration policy because those people are going to be Democratic voters and that's what's going to lead to the promised land that, that John Judas and, and Rui Teixeira promised us we'd get to with Texas and, and, and yeah, New Mexico uh-huh. and Arizona and Colorado and Nevada as, as Democratic states. Well, look, a few things about that. When when Rui and I wrote that book and, you know, continuing through that early 2000s, we always said that in order for that kind of majority to work that we described, my you know, certain percentage of minorities, professionals and so on, Democrats would have to hold on to about 40 percent of the white working class. And that meant majorities in states like uh, well, obviously West Virginia, but uh, Wisconsin would be another one. And uh, if you adopt uh, policies on immigration that alienate th- that many voters, it's not th- that formula is not going to work, so that's that's one thing, and that's really, uh, I mean, that's I guess been our disappointment in terms of the building the coalition that the Democrats haven't been able to uh, maintain its their what used to be their traditional hold over these voters. Um, the second thing is that that in the long run, I I uh, I've been very influenced by Richard Alba, the dem- demographer at NYU. Uh, the whole category of 
who is white and who is not is going to shift. And there's a lot of intermarriage, uh, especially among uh, Hispanics and Latin and Asians. And so the the politics based upon that is going to be under note of agreement. It's such a a, a truism now that the the U.S. is going to be majority minority in 2050 or whatever year. Um, But that assumes, you know, something that's ahistorical. Throughout American history, first of all, we the way we define minority has changed radically. So it assumes that the current definition in 2019 will be sticky enough to prevail in, in 2050. And second of all, it, it as you said, it, it assumes that minority voters will behave in a certain way just because they're minority voters. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you went back a hundred years, people would say Italian-Americans are minority voters. They're not white, you know. And, Jews as well. Yeah, and, and Irish and, and so on. Well. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and the whole idea that these right. people are, are a sort of congealed mass called white people who are conservative was not part of the conversation or the political reality. So people move in and out of majority-minority status and they change their ideology as, as a lot of those white ethnic uh, voters did. Um, so so that's just by way of agreeing with you. If, if you were to construct a liberal or left version of nationalism, what would that look like? Well... A, a, a few things. I think it it would it, there it, it would have some kind of concern about uh, trying to address the uh, uneven development within our country. The fact that there really are these uh, air areas of the country that have been deindustrialized over the last uh, thirty or forty years, and they've been the source of a lot of the discontent. And the same in Europe, uh, by the way, the country. So you know, regional voting. Yes, exactly the same in every. You, you, we have red states and blue states. Every state has red and blue state inside it, right. and every European country has a red and blue, and they all look sort of alike. Right. You know, Copenhagen is blue, etc. Right. Um, right. Paris versus uh, northern uh, France, which yeah. is, uh, again, uh, very affected by the, the loss of industry. So uh, that that's one aspect of it, and don't ask me exactly how how that's going to be done. But uh, uh, the the other the other aspect is a kind of combination of the need for uh, a much more advanced uh, welfare state in terms of economic security. Um, say Medicare for all or Medicare for anyone, but a, but a, a real national health insurance uh, system that, that we don't have. Uh, much more attention to uh, uh, pensions and to access to, edu- educa- access to education. In order for that to happen, though, I think we have to restore a sense that we are one nation and that uh, the people who live here are all Americans and that we're not a, a set of different nations. And a part of what is involved there is, and now we're getting back to the last point, is the, is having a real immigration policy uh, that addresses that 
that encourages assimilation of immigrants, uh, that doesn't uh, keep recreating a kind of underclass, that brings the people who are here, who are illegal or undocumented into the into the nation as citizens. So I think that that's without doing that, it's going to be hard to have the advanced welfare state. But if we do again, that would be part of my um, that would be and, part and of my nationalist way, you know, agenda. Toward the end of our time, but I just want to note, and you'll probably want to respond. It's been very striking to me with this book how it took weeks or months for liberal reviewers to sort of get themselves comfortable with engaging with what you're saying. Um, and and now there's there's a lot of wonderful reviews, but but right out of the box, um, we were getting reviews in Breitbart. And and everybody else was saying, hmm. and 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 I, I do feel like you've really made a contribution to bringing this idea that nationalism isn't necessarily automatically right wing back into the conversation and forcing, you know, liberal reviewers and others to to grapple with it. Yeah, I I was uh, I as you remember I predicted to you that this would happen, and uh, uh, what I heard from friends, uh, oh, for instance, one professor who recommended the book to his uh, left wing students was that uh, people just identified nationalism with Trump at this point, and they don't want any part of it. Uh, so that's the that's been that was yeah, a, but that's I do been think a, a big know, going obstacle. into the next presidential election cycle, the more attention liberals and Democrats pay to your book, the better they'll be likely to do in the next election. Um, so I, I think you're, you're um, uh, you know, not you, – you're doing something that ought to be helpful to that camp um, by, by calling attention to it. Um, John, thanks so much for being with us. Um, and thanks for writing the book. Uh, just to remind everyone, uh, John's two Columbia Global Reports books are The Nationalist Revival, Trade, Immigration, and the Revolt Against Globalization, and the earlier, The Populist Explosion, How the Great Recession Transformed American and European Politics. Find them now wherever you buy books. Thank you for speaking uh, to us. And, and after you've devoured those books in your hungry for more wait about a year and a few months and we'll have another book by john for you thanks john thank you